Tuesday, February 18th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Fool.com, Alice Lomax. Happy Tuesday. Hey, hey. So, I think it was last Wednesday when uh, I said at the end of Market Foolery, weather's coming. <laughs> A storm is coming. We may not be here on Thursday. What I forgot to mention was, and oh, by the way, Monday is President's Day, so we, so so we've been off for a little while. I, I will say though, we we were able to make it in here Friday for Molly Fool Money. We did. I mean, while everybody else out there was digging away, figuring, hey, we got an excuse here with the snow, we made it in. Did you do anything to celebrate for President's Day, Alice? Anything special? I relaxed to the point of sloth. It was really fun. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> it was great. And you? Uh, not a whole lot. I dug didn't, some more snow. Didn't take and, in a parade um, or anything like that? I didn't. You know, I mean, the kids had to go to school because actually they were supposed to be off, but they've had so many snow days already that they were forced <laughs> to go back to school yesterday to make up some of those uh, snow days. Uh, so, you know, we were uh, just kind of hanging out at home, went to Starbucks for a little bit. and There's a very nice parade every year here in Old Town Alexandria. Is that the Scottish parade? No, no. no that's I'll the one you. at Christmas. This, gotcha. is, this is the George Washington's birthday parade. Makes sense. And ah. for those out there who are fans of George Washington, you need to know that Alexandria, Virginia is the epicenter of people who hate President's Day <laughs> – and believe it should just be George Washington's birthday. Yeah, it's like, a little look, bit of a personal. There, there's a there, there's an interesting website. Uh, I think it's just like if you just Google George George Washington birthday parade, you will find it. And there's there's a little buried somewhere on the website is a little sort of declaration of no, it's not President's Day. All due respect to Abe Lincoln, this is George Washington's birthday. He's the one we should be celebrating. That's pretty harsh. Uh, yeah, it is. It, it you know what it is. It sort of borders on harshness. But anyway. Um, we've got some earnings to get into. We've got a hot IPO that I'm very excited about that's coming down the pike. <laughs> but let's start with the Winter Olympics, and that's Under Armour. And for those who have not been watching the Winter Olympics and the business drama that has unfolded, the backstory, Jason, is that Under Armour, in conjunction with Lockheed Martin, designed new suits for the U.S. speed skating team with a great name, Mach 39. That's a yeah. great name if, if, in terms of just naming apparel. In the opening rounds of the speed skating, the U.S. team performed horribly. So, of course, it has to be the suit, It's right? got to be the suit. Yeah, I mean, it's, and they can't vo- be anything else. And they voted as a team to ditch the Mach 39 suits and go back to their original suits, also made by Under Armour. And proven winners, I might add. They've won in those uniforms as well, those suits. And how did that play out in the next round of speed skating? Not so well, Chris. Not so well. <laughs> you know, I, I have – man, I tell you what, I've been kicking this one around for a while. And I actually I, – I got so worked up over it. I published an article last night on this very issue because, you know, I, I want to be very clear here. I am rooting for our U.S. Olympic athletes to win every single medal out there. But no offense. I mean, I think the, the speed skating team needs to – Shut up, admit they got beat, turn around and go back to work. And and here's one of the things one of the things that really kills me here, and I don't know I'm I'm no speed skater. It's easy for me to be to play Monday morning quarterback. But you know, I, I was reading through a lot of this stuff that's been going on here. Associated Press's Gary D'Amato published an article there with some some backup from Dan Jansen, you know, a, a speed skater, yeah. gold medal winner. And and a lot of this goes back to how the speed skating team is trained. Now, they train almost exclusively in Salt Lake City, up at altitude, very high. The idea is that this builds stamina. Understood. I get that. Speed skating in Sochi is is very different. It's at sea level. 
and the air is denser. It creates more drag, and it is an entirely different skating, accord, according to many of these uh, professional skaters and former athletes. And so I, I think it, it's, is it not plausible? Is it not at least possible that they botched the training effort here? I mean, let me give you an example. It certainly I can, looks that I way. I can draw a parallel here, okay? I've played competitive golf all my life, pretty much all my life. Now, when I'm going to go play in a golf tournament, and I know it's going to be on a, on a golf course where the greens are hilly and really fast, I'm not going out and practicing on flat, slow greens. I'm going to try to get those conditions. I'm going to try to, to mimic those conditions to, to, to what I'm going to be competing uh, you know, on, a, on in the tournament. And so it struck me that I don't understand why the skaters wouldn't try to match those conditions. There's a facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is at sea level where they use uh, to train at sea level conditions. They apparently didn't use that at all here. I think it would be different had they maybe looked at the training question first and then the suit second. But it seems like they immediately defaulted to it had to be the suit. I mean, this thing, like you said, it was developed in conjunction with Lockheed Martin. They spilled like a million dollars into this thing, testing it ad nauseum. There were no indications of any parachute effects whatsoever. And now you've got to – once you eliminate – once you get that seed of doubt into an athlete's mind, they're toast. So whether or not it was the suit, just throwing that out there as a possibility, those athletes are done. And I'm not trying to belittle their efforts here, but I hate to see athletes just immediately default to it's got to be the equipment. In this case, it wasn't. It just, I'm, I'm not convinced that it was. It's a poor craftsman that blames his tools. I don't think that the market's <laughs> convinced either because Under Armour's up today about a 1.5%, so hey. I was just going to say, Alice, it's not like the stock is taking a hit, and I agree with Jason that it, we're not seeing this, – this ultimately is not going to adversely affect Under Armour. But as a general rule of thumb, as an investor, you don't like to see your company playing defense. You don't like to see your company playing damage control. So in that sense, isn't this doesn't this hurt Under Armour just a little bit just from the fact that they have to take time and because to Jason's point about you you plant a seed of doubt in an athlete's mind, I could see organizations having now just have a little seed of doubt about Under Armour. I could be wrong though. What do you think? Well, when I first saw the news, I was like, "Oh, this is horrible." But, um, yeah, I see Jason's point that this is sort of user error, not like, you know, necessarily the actual uniform or I don't know. Under Armour's always struck me as a very interesting company. Um, but, yeah, the reputational risk is always a concern because that's usually the headline. So for investing, you know, points like Jason's are good. I think a couple of points to note. You know, I was reading up on this. Back in 2006, there was a similar uh, issue here with the Nike suits. The, the Nike was a former sponsor of the team. Now, before the competition actually started, the team decided to bag some new Nike suits that were that were presented to them and go back to their old Nike suits. Uh, and they, you know, they did pretty well. So they didn't have to. They didn't make that switch. You know, in the middle of the competition. Um, but I think that you know, to your point about yeah, this can certainly uh, be uh, you know a drag on a company whenever they have to deal with this kind of bad press. So one of the keys you know you want to focus on is how is the company responding to this? And I think when you look at the way Under Armour has responded to this, I think you've got to feel pretty good about it if you're a shareholder, if you're looking at buying shares, because they were so quick to get boots on the ground there and, and, and try to figure out what was going on. Uh, they, were, they were not quick to, to become defensive and, oh, it just can't be our problem. I mean, they, they voiced an opinion that they felt like the suits had been tested 
you know, Kevin Plank, I think had he he just he gave a great interview a couple of days ago where he's just he's handling the situation with equanimity. He called all of these questions very fair, and that his number one priority is to make sure that our athletes get right. the best equipment to get out there and win. So I think when you have a management team that's responding like that, that's encouraging. He walked the fine line, and his company has walked the fine line that it needed to, yeah. and not spilling over to blaming the athletes, much exactly. like you, much like you just did. Yeah, and that's true. You know, that's the difference <laughs> between Plank and, and me, and along with you know a few billion dollars. All right, let's move on to some earnings. Uh, we were going to hit this uh, last week on Thursday, but our office was closed. But Whole Foods first quarter profits rose more than seven percent, but Alice shares down around six percent since they reported after the market closed on Wednesday. Uh, for disclosure purposes, John Mackey, co-founder, co-CEO at Whole Foods is a member of our board of directors here at The Motley Fool. When you look at this quarter, it I don't know, it struck me as a good quarter overall. Was it just not good enough? What did you, This is a company you watch closely. What did you yes. make of the quarter? Yes, and I also own shares, so I've been watching this company for years and years. And from a long-term perspective, I think what happened last week is just a great thing to happen for people who want to buy and hold. Um, one of the uh, worst assumptions about Whole Foods is the whole paycheck thing, and that's been going on for years. And what happened with this quarter, and this is what often upsets traders and analysts and everybody, is that they've been trying to offer more value offerings. And really, I view that as a great strategic thing to do. They need to get the word out, but it's wonderful to get more and more people into their stores, understanding their whole strategy, organics, no GMOs, animal welfare, community help, fair trade type stuff. So, I mean, they even help local business. I've noticed over the last couple of years more and more – and maybe I'm just noticing this and this isn't really the case, but – it seems like they're offering more and more of their in-house yes. brand, the 365. Yes. Is that, as a shareholder, should I be happy about that? Is that higher margin, lower margin? What should I think about seeing more and more 365 brands in the store? Yeah, well, I think regardless of the, the margin issue that I know everybody's freaking out about, too, is, I'm not freaking out. I'm just <laughs> yeah, asking. Yeah, you're totally freaking out. <laughs> just kidding. You're very calm. <laughs> Um, And it is a legitimate question. But the truth is, um, again, the whole paycheck uh, issue is just so difficult for them. And actually, the house brand is completely competitive. I've done sort of an unscientific price check between them and Harris Teeter. And really, they are either comparable. Occasionally, Harris Teeter is a little more expensive Occasionally, Whole Foods is a little more expensive. If you're on the outside of the store at Whole Foods, you know, some of the stuff absolutely is going to be more expensive because we're talking about artisanal, we're talking about local suppliers, we're talking about local farmers. But honestly, the truth is, is if you're looking for, you know, a certain actually even name brand soups like Amy's, it's pretty much the same or cheaper at Whole Foods if you want a bottle of tomato sauce if you want pasta. I mean, this stuff is not – even the dairy isn't – You know, this stuff isn't breaking the bank. If right. people were really paying attention to that, they would know that. Jason, one of the things that was almost – I don't want to say it was buried, uh, but in terms of investors, I'm curious what this means long term. This is the new partnership that Whole Foods has with Square, oh, yeah. the, the mobile payment system. 
how is that helping? Is that just helping the customer experience at Whole Foods and therefore it's one more reason to walk in the door? Or is that something that's going to meaningfully add to the bottom line? Well, I don't know that it's something that's going to meaningfully add to the bottom line, but I think it does create a better experience. And the thing about Whole Foods is, that's different from uh, a number of other stores is you go in there and you've got a grocery store, but then you have all of these other sort of ancillary offerings, whether it's the coffee slash beer bar, uh, the you know the food, the burgers, the any, any of that stuff, the bakery there. Um, and so they're offering, I think, a number of different ways for consumers to be able to check out. So if I go in there, for example, like on uh, on Friday, for example, I took my daughters over there from, from work here to, to get some lunch and to buy some stuff to make dinner. And I was able to check out uh, paying for their pizza slices without having to go to the register uh, but rather paying for it there at, at the little kiosk right there. And I'm, I'm not sure if they're actually hooked up with Square yet or not, but I don't think they are. But the point is that it was it was another option to make it more convenient for me. And I think that's ultimately what they're trying to do because, you know, they, they have for the longest time, you know, like Alice was talking about the whole paychecks issue. And the reason why they're able to kind of deal with that at least is that people were paying uh, for the experience. And, and I think that you know, Whole Foods is going to need to continue to focus on that experience because that's one of the things that really differentiates them uh, while at the same time, you know, bringing more value, more offerings into the store. And so I think that, that that's ultimately what that square deal is for. Well, I actually think one other thing that, you know, anybody who's ever almost had like an anxiety attack in Whole Foods on the weekends, I think they're getting some of that traffic just out of there and moving. Yeah. That's also an experience thing because I personally find it stressful. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, somebody's yeah. going to run me over. <laughs> there's there's no question and maybe it's just the experience of the Whole Foods near us, but <laughs> it, it gets really crowded in there. It does. And um you know, you still go. It's still great. As a shareholder, I'm glad to see myself almost getting run down. But I think the experience <laughs> and, the, and yeah. the traffic is going to be better. That's probably one of the biggest detractors from uh, Trader Joe's, I'd say. Is I mean, I, I like those stores a lot and what yeah. they have to offer, but they're so small. And, I mean, you can go in there pretty much at any given time, and it's just going to be a madhouse. It's just it's, yeah. it's becoming less and less of a pleasant experience. And I think Whole Foods has done a good job at least – keeping it a reasonably pleasant experience. Yeah, absolutely. Can I can I just add one more thing about the value offerings is another thing that the short-term investors I think are concentrating on and freaking out about. They're forgetting that Whole Foods has been doing this for several years now and they actually started doing this, you know, around the time of the recession. They weathered that really well. And about a year ago in a conference call, AC Gallo said, you know, we're doing this for 20 years. We're not here for quarter to quarter. So I just wanted to issue that reminder right. because investors just forget the long term and forget this has been going on. So Let's move on to Coca-Cola. Fourth quarter profits fell 8%. Revenue came in lower than expected. Uh, Alice, uh, speaking of things that have been going on for a long time, soda sales in North America continuing to drop. And when you combine that with uh, growth slowing down in China and India, I have a hard time wrapping my head around how Coca-Cola is going to reverse these trends in a way that really makes the stock move. Yeah. I mean, when I saw that news, I was not like – you know, unlike Whole Foods, I wasn't like, oh, you know, this is looking yeah, looking really compelling. I don't <laughs> think it's very compelling. The, the stock no. was down 4% at one point this morning. So I'm sure there were some people looking at it saying, well, it's a buying opportunity. It's a $165 billion company. It's not going anywhere. They're a great operator. Time to buy. I, I don't know. I, what is? What should someone 
who is looking at this stock right now and doesn't own it, what should someone be expecting out of Coca-Cola over the next five years? Yeah, you know, I think they're going to have to work a lot harder on some kind of innovation. I mean, when I look at Coke and Pepsi, like right now I'm seeing two companies that are similar and are having a similar problem right now. I mean, this is both companies with the soda sales. But honestly, you know, most of Pepsi's uh, business is actually the snacks. And I think they have more room to do things there. And it's not just, you know, we have to fight the the health issues with beverages, which is a big deal now. So... I think any time – I mean I, I kind of look at – I look to myself as a little bit of a proxy eater just because I, I am a big Diet Coke fan. Yeah. And even I am starting to pay attention to at least how much Diet Coke I drink and I'm it's, it's becoming right less now. and yeah. less. <laughs> but I mean I, I think that you, know, you have to look – you have to separate Coca-Cola. I mean the competitive advantage really there is the brand and the distribution network. I mean that's what they have you know, just, just down pat is this distribution network. Now – Soda in the United States is obviously the, the consumption is is dropping, and I don't see anything turning that around. I mean, I think that's honestly something that's going to continue to fall, and I think they know this, and I think that's why they bought Honest Tea, and they're continuing to push more things like vitamin water, and I think that you know they're going to have to, like Alice was saying, sort of innovate some new products there to utilize that distribution model and take the focus away from soda. Pepsi does have sort of that salty snack thing to fall back on. And I mean, it wouldn't surprise me terribly to see Coca-Cola do something like that. I mean, as far as looking at the stock today, I mean, it's a big company already, obviously. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think looking at the stock, expecting it to double over the course of the next five to ten years is even really all that reasonable. I mean, it probably you know, probably does okay. It gives you a nice little stream of a pretty stead, a steady dividend income. But uh, yeah, I think they're fighting some serious headwinds here. And I think that as those headwinds play out here... You have to kind of keep in mind here at some point on a global basis where they're still performing pretty well, those headwinds are going to start translating over there too. If you are one of the 93 million people addicted to the video game Candy Crush Saga, boy, do we have some good news for you. King Digital Entertainment, the company behind Candy Crush Saga, has filed for an IPO here in the United States. Uh, First things first. I've never played this game. Have either of you ever? No. I cannot say that okay. I have. So we're not among the... 93 million. 93 million. I mean, you said I, addicted. I thought you were going to say Diet Coke. No. I was actually canceled not to start. <laughs> I, I mean, I've heard from people that have you yeah. know reached the point of frustration. I have friends who, on Facebook, they will check in and post. So that's how I first became aware of it. But what do we, this seems like Zynga 2.0, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. I mean, is there any way that this works out really well for investors? I mean, if because I can see someone, I can see an investor out there saying, "I love that game. I, I can I can now be a part owner of this business." I keep thinking about Farmville, and you don't hear about Farmville anymore, no. and that was huge for a while. Those things just have such a short life anymore. So I mean, yeah, the stock could do well just because of stupid market psychology. But, I mean, when you look at the fundamentals of the business and the market that they're trying to tackle, I mean, I, they're so they're, – they're just so dependent on on the hit. And, I mean, like you, you look at look at the big dog in the space in Activision Blizzard and what they've been able to do with Call of Duty and World of Warcraft for the longest time. And, and the risk was always there that they were going to at some point start losing subscribers there and those lives were going to – those games were going to kind of run their course. And, and they're starting to. I think mobile games, they run a very – a much faster life. Um, and, and so – I mean, yeah, Candy Crush did very well, but that doesn't mean the next game's going to do very well. And what's more is, even if it does, 
is it really going to make that much money? I mean, it's not like it's that big of a market opportunity. I think they're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of $12 billion market opportunity. And if this company goes public with a valuation implied between 5 and $6 billion, that seems pretty optimistic in my book. Final question. Your movie candy of choice. And I'm, I'm just prefacing this by saying it's whatever you want, not if you're on a date or you're with your kids or anything like that. You're just left to your own devices. You're watching a movie. You're at the theater. What is your go-to candy, Alice? Junior Mints. That's strong. You? (laughs) Milk duds. Milk duds. Yeah. Really? It's it's close, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because my wife and my daughters love Junior Mints. And again, if I buy the milk duds, typically they don't want any, so I get them all to myself. Smart. And I like them a lot. I'm that way with raisinets. There you go. No one else wants the raisinets. I get them all (laughs) to myself. That's pretty healthy. There's a raisin in there. That's what I tell myself. Dan and Ann back there shaking their heads. I don't even know what to make of that. (laughs) All right. Alice Lomax, Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry or Dan Boyd. Maybe they're duking it out for the right. I think Dan's just back there for moral support. (laughs) I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) 